0: The rich people always flying off somewhere <laughs> hey everyone welcome to the vegan vanguard it's mexi and today we have a super special guest on the show uh if you've listened to this podcast at all or follow me in any way you'll know that i absolutely love the Media roots radio podcast hosted by Robbie Martin and Abby Martin. So today we have one half of that duo here to talk to us today. So welcome, Robbie.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And Robbie, also, like beyond Media Roots, you also do documentary films, right? So you have a very heavy agenda, which is three, a trilogy, which is amazing. I don't talk about it as much on my channel or like my Twitter feed as I do Media Roots, but I love those videos. No, thank you. I don't know if you want to talk a bit about them oh, or
1: sure. Yeah. I mean, I've, I, I've, it's a trilogy, like you said. Um, I kind of feel weird calling it a trilogy, but it, it definitely <laughs> is. Uh, and I guess the only other documentary film I'd want to publicize, uh, that I've made is called American Anthrax. And that one is much easier to digest. It's only 40 minutes. Um, and uh, that one covers a very specific subject, which is the 2001 anthrax attacks and a lot of the questions still surrounding that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I guess I'll I'll throw this out there too. I haven't really publicized this in a while, but I did something that's also very long. Um, It's almost four hours long. It's called American Bisque. It was sort of my first um, experiment in trying to make a documentary film. Um, That one is a little more experimental. It's it's kind of like a very long music video um, with really dark political content sort of overlaid over the top. And it shows, it's, it basically goes back to the Vietnam War to the present and, and shows some of the most horrifying imagery um, and basically propaganda that the American government is responsible for. Um, set to electronic music from each era that I'm showing in chronological order. So that that's mm. the only thing that's sort of maybe notable about that one. But I recommend um, people who have weak stomachs or who don't, you know, don't want to see imagery of real death, um, which I completely understand to avoid that one. Um, but it's it's out there on YouTube. It's called American Bisque if anybody wants to check that out.
0: Yeah, very cool. So I'll link these all in the timeline so people can check them out. But yeah, well, I, even your your first video from A Very Heavy Agenda had – uh, quite a long sequence where it was just music and then kind of these totally. horrifying like, news clips
1: that was my that was my um, yeah I was basically throwing in something that was like a miniature American bisque in the middle of that documentary <laughs> yeah.
0: I remember I actually got high to watch that video. And I just remember <laughs> that sequence was just so dizzying and horrifying to me. But yeah, it was I felt it nice. was really powerful. So but yeah, I definitely recommend those because I would say that I on my channel and in this podcast, like I talk more, I guess, about economics or systemic issues. Like I look at a bit bit more abstract at the system of capitalism and how its inner mechanisms drive things like imperialism and war and everything. But I love these documentaries and media roots because you guys actually really dig into exactly how this stuff manifests on the ground and like through which institutions and people and, and all of that, because I feel like if you're looking at the systemic level, which a lot a lot of us do, you kind of forget that this is actually carried out by actual people and like actual groups. And it's actually it's really horrifying to see who is doing that and like why and where the money is coming from and everything.
1: Yeah, I mean, we're definitely coming at it from from kind of not opposite ends of the spectrum, but but we're coming at it from different angles. And yeah, I think that's to, to me. What's most fascinating for me personally is the psychology of some of these individuals who are sort of like directly instrumental in basically fucking up the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we know a lot about the oligarchs and, and sort of the household names, but in very heavy agenda, I guess part of my goal was showing people that I think do incredible damage that nobody's really heard of. Um, you know, and specifically the Kagan family, uh, who, who I'm personally obsessed with, um, is like a family family where almost every member of the family is directly involved in this sort of war um, making, you know, think tank propaganda culture. So mm-hmm. I found them very fascinating. And um, yeah, I think more people should be aware of what they're doing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I didn't actually even know that much about them until I watched the documentary. So Yeah, I was really floored. But I'm also interested in the psychology because, you know, a lot of I I think a lot of leftists are kind of against the whole like conspiracy ish stuff, not against it, but they just kind of feel like that misses the mark in a sense, because if you get really obsessed with individuals, then you kind of forget that, you know, even if you replace those individuals within this system, you would still have the same result. But I find it fascinating to think of like, well, why is that? Like, why is it that? if you put people in these positions, they end up these maniacs, like, where does that come from? You know, like, (laughs) yeah,
1: well, a lot of a lot of people on the left do sort of reject what you're talking about. And I mean, that's something that we try to do with media roots radio is, is, um, you know, bring in things that are sort of conspiracy fact, I would call them. Um, And a lot of that gets jumbled in this bigger mess of, You know, oh, you know, you're a conspiracy theorist or that's a conspiracy theory. But as we see today, you know, even things like questioning all these suspicious, frankly, suspicious chemical weapons attacks happening over and over again in Syria makes you a conspiracy Mm -hmm. theorist. And so does questioning Russiagate. So, you know, Mm -hmm. I think right now more than ever is probably the most valuable time to, you know, question a lot of things, you know, more, perhaps more than ever before. So, um, Mm -hmm. so yeah, I don't, I don't shy away from that, but I mean, but at the same time on our podcast, we definitely sift through things that we would consider bad conspiracy theories, you know, like QAnon Mm -hmm. or Pizzagate and, and sort of shift those, (laughs) sift through those and put those in one camp. And then things like, you know, that Russiagate is mostly, uh, sitting on a, uh, tower of, of of propaganda um and mm-hmm. most of it's unproven so um
0: mm-hmm. so yeah yeah exactly well you do a really good job at parsing out like the politics behind all of that too and you can point to exactly yeah. like who's benefiting from these things and it's scary so yeah yeah so today we, we're going to talk about alex jones free speech censorship silicon valley all of that good stuff so i know you've been following alex jones for quite a while I think you were following him even before he kind of went mad, and then you've kind of tracked his descent into madness um you had his his wife, his ex wife on recently to talk about that, so yeah you're you're pretty much in the know <laughs> when it comes to alex Jones and Infowars, et cetera. so I think most people listening to this podcast probably have heard about Alex Jones being banned from all of these uh platforms because there's been a lot of either celebration or I guess more hesitation about the implications but I guess we can start with maybe outlining what happened and why like what was the stated reason for this to happen and then yeah maybe put this into context a little bit if you could
1: yeah so I guess the larger context I'll start with is um, and this is something that Abby and I have been talking about frequently on the podcast is that after the 2016 election um, we were presented with this idea that Donald Trump won the election because of a Russian disinformation, Russian meddling campaign, um, where they essentially, you know, quote unquote, cyber attacked us to w- get the uh, the candidate of their favor in, which was Donald Trump. We had another narrative also presented after the 2016 election that was a little more of a nuanced narrative uh, that says that Russian disinformation and Russian meddling um, is a campaign designed to sow discord in our country and to polarize our country even more than it already is. So to create a, a wider gulf between the left and the right and these different political camps. So that was sort of what Abby and I saw as a, as a, as a disinformation campaign in and of itself um, being presented by think tanks and um, various media outlets, mainstream media outlets, and also intelligence agencies. Um, Right after the election, the Obama administration had the director of national intelligence office release a report essentially laying out the case that Russia was meddling in our country and was doing all this damage to our political discourse. Mm -hmm. And in that report, they actually quoted Abby. (laughs) Um, They quoted her a line, she said, from her show on Breaking the Set. So soon as we we saw that, we were obviously very alarmed that they, that Abby would be on their radar.
0: Sorry, that was 2016.
1: This was 2016, yes, okay, okay. and it was right before the inauguration, but right after the election. So I think it was sometime in I'm I want to say late November, but I think it was more like December 2016. Okay, um, and. When, when Abby and I saw that her name was in or actually the creepier part was her name wasn't actually in it, but they quoted her a couple of times, and we recognized the quotes, and they mentioned RT, the network, and we found this very unsettling, obviously, because what they were laying out in this document was that Abby, by suggesting that the two-party system is a sham, that's the actual quote they quoted of her in this report, mm-hmm. um, was sowing discord. Um, that that's the narrative they're trying to present in this document. We find that obviously found that very unsettling because that's a very common, uh, refrain or thing that you hear from people in America who are sick of our two-party system. Mm-hmm. So that was very troubling. Um, and it was also troubling that Abby's name wasn't even mentioned in it. So that really the only people who recognized these quotes were people who'd watched her show. Mm-hmm. So uh, unsettling for different reason. Right. So, um, so many months passed, and then all of a sudden, it became this big hysterical thing that um, that there was collusion between the Trump campaign um, to get him in uh, Russia to get him elected. Because apparently, the narrative goes, uh, WikiLeaks worked with Russian state actors to leak these emails from John Podesta and Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. So, just g- giving all this context, I think is important because it sort of explains why um, we are where we are today, which is. We're in the middle of this climate now where social media networks have started working with these sort of uh, fake news bodies, uh, uh, organizations that uh, stated goal is to help vet the internet for fake news and Mm -hmm. to help remove uh, fake news from social media platforms. And I should have mentioned earlier that the term fake news became intertwined with this idea of Russian disinformation. So, for example, if a Russian media outlet put out something uh, skeptical of that, you know, that Assad launched a chemical weapons attack, and other media outlets ran with that same theory, all the other media outlets by proxy could now be called Russian disinformation, or they're towing the Kremlin, Kremlin line, or they're just fake news, they're conspiracy news. Mm-hmm. Um, so, this all became this, you know, this messy narrative where It all became conflated together. So you had this organization called Prop or Not um, that got a a giant article written up about it in the Washington Post right before the Donald Trump inauguration, listing dozens of anti-imperialist, anti-war websites under this umbrella of Russian disinformation. They included websites like counterpunch.org, antiwar.org, Black Agenda Report, and you know, this was all very, very troubling, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I believe we didn't actually start seeing the effects of it, the serious implications of it until fairly recently. And around the same time um, that Alex Jones got banned off of multiple social media networks, all within the same 24-hour period, we started Mm -hmm. to see Facebook remove the Telesur page, for example, which is a Venezuelan and and joint Latin American country funded news organization that takes anti-imperialist positions. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we started to see um, a bunch of left activists getting banned off Twitter. Um, And, you know, I think the most troubling thing about this, about let's just talk about the Infowars ban, is that it all happened in a seemingly coordinated fashion. Um, so one could make the argument that it was because of organic terms of service violations that Alex Jones has become so unhinged, so dangerous, and so crazy that they needed, you know, these social media networks needed to shut him down based on their own terms of service. But I think that the timing needs to be looked at because um, I believe that it is under this greater umbrella of combating fake news. And it is creepy and and frankly, very unsettling that they he would get purged off of these networks all within the same 24-hour period. Mm-hmm. There does appear to be some kind of coordinated effort there. And it reminds me of when, and I'm not putting Alex Jones in any way in the same category as Assange or WikiLeaks. Um, mm-hmm. I think he's more, much more of a charlatan. But it, it does harken back to when WikiLeaks um, first you know, came out with the collateral murder video. And we heard that Joe Lieberman called... Uh, Amazon to get their website shut down because at the time WikiLeaks had their website hosted on Amazon servers. We heard that PayPal and other um, you know credit card companies, in a coordinated effort, stopped processing donations to WikiLeaks. Mm-hmm. That speaks to some kind of um, you know I don't I, I, I hate the term deep state these days because it becomes so distorted, <laughs> but that speaks to some kind of coordinated effort between government and corporate entities to do something that I would describe as kind of deep Mm state-ish. And, um, you know, it gets really dicey because, like, this is almost creates – it martyrs Alex Jones in the sense where he's been saying for years that the, quote-unquote, the deep state's coming for him. They're trying to pull him off the Internet. And now it seems like – it's almost like – you know, in, in a way, he's he was been he's been right about that, unfortunately, because it all it seemed to happen virtually overnight. So, yeah, um, I I'm, I have a lot of mixed feelings about it. We could talk about you know some of the ins and outs of of all the different, you know, because because he presents a unique case. Let's just put it that way.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, in terms of this like deep state thing, Facebook is now working with that Atlantic Council, and they yeah. are funded by what state agencies and like.
1: They're funded by NATO, they're funded by the National Endowment for Democracy, they're funded by defense companies. Right. So they're funded by it's a j it's a split between actual US government agencies and like companies that manufacture weapons mm-hmm. and things like that.
0: Mm-hmm. So I guess I guess I'm wondering like why is Facebook now working with this Atlantic Council? Is it just because of public pressure and you know, wanting to keep their stock value high or whatever? Because I feel, I mean, and you've talked about this on your show a lot, that even if the Russians did meddle in terms of putting out information, I mean, most of it wasn't even disinformation, it was just information that put the Democrats into a bad light, or like far-left information, but that probably didn't have that much of an effect compared to a lot of other things, like, like the Cambridge Analytica thing, which was... Yeah. funded by funded by republicans so it kind of seems like yeah. the things that actually had the most impact on the voting public and getting trump elected etc were right-wing things but then somehow i guess in the narrative it got spun to be like no anyone left of center somehow is promoting the kremlin line yeah. so i just find yeah. that kind of confusing
1: well it is very confusing and it, i mean but if you think about it in terms of a way to weaponize, um, well, not I guess that's not the right word, but a way to essentially marginalize everybody who's not towing this, the, the mainstream narrative, um, it, it's kind of the perfect way to do that because it, it, it essentially makes anyone who differs from those conventional narratives, like, for example, um, you know that that Assad is repeatedly launching chemical weapons against his own people even though he knows and most people know that that's the that's the moment when the rest of the world will be like okay now we now he's crossed the red line again and now we need to attack just simply doubting that now makes you you know a, a Kremlin propagandist and i think that that just that example reveals what the true nature of this is really about it's to marginalize and stifle essentially any dissenting voice and and I and I think that also includes people on the right, um, even though I do believe that the left and and dissenting voices from the left pose a far greater danger um, to the establishment in this country than the right does. But I also think that they're a target as well. So you'll see conservatives sort of spinning this issue and turning it completely partisan, saying they're shadow banning conservatives, Silicon Valley is all ran by liberals, mm-hmm. they're all on the left at Twitter. That's completely missing the the actual greater point, I think, which is that... Any real dissenting voice that ve- veers away from this conventional narrative or narratives um, will be marginalized or stifled. And I think that it's a it's almost a way to um, to stem the flow of what the internet was evolving into, which was more of an egalitarian, equal playing field. Yeah, if you want to put out fake... Like, let's just say you want to literally put out blatantly fake news and hoax people, um, you, could, you could do that on the internet. I mean, the internet allows you to do that. This is a way to just stem and prevent, I think, the internet from growing into what it was originally designed to be, um, which is like a free and open platform to share ideas. And um, I, I do think that a lot of people in the establishment and and in this corporate world are getting scared of that. But at the same time, you brought up the issue of why would um, you know, Cambridge Analytica, for example, had a much bigger impact. Mm-hmm. And we saw Facebook brought in, you know, Mark Zuckerberg brought in to testify um, about this. And there's this mindset, I believe, among a lot of these Silicon Valley executives and companies that they feel like they want the government at this point, perhaps to regulate them so that it's it's hard to articulate this, but I feel like they actually in some ways want regulation now, because they realize how powerful they've gotten, and they don't wanna do anything to actually violate the law at this point. But I think actually more importantly, is they don't wanna be blamed
0: mm-hmm.
1: for throwing the election to another candidate like Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Because, and so I think that's almost what it comes down to is they, so to obfuscate the blame, they are now hiring these editorial bodies you know to determine what's fake news or not so that in the future if you know something terrible happens they'll be like no we had a we had a a, a system in place to vet fake news it's not our fault mm-hmm. you know we did a really good job to vet fake news or whatever the hell that means mm-hmm. um but then you see, you look at companies like google and they've actually been doing this uh before the 2016 election mm-hmm. um they've been deranking state media they've been deranking media they've already deemed fake news and that's all in the eye of the beholder this term of you know this concept of fake news so mm-hmm. that's where it becomes a really slippery slope i think um and i think that that slippery slope argument is is very valid um when you when you when you really lay all that stuff out
0: mm-hmm. yeah i mean i guess I remember during the Cambridge Analytica thing a lot of people were saying we're not going to use Facebook anymore we're not going to use Facebook and I think I know they really took a hit. So in terms of just, you know, needing to continue their profit motive and everything, I understand why they would I guess partner with this this uh, atlantic council but something like cambridge analytica which is what they came under heat for like they weren't necessarily even putting out fake news right like they were just getting a lot of data about different users and about their politics and then figuring out ways that they could influence their thoughts by i don't know their timeline or whatever and i, I yeah. actually listened to one of your podcasts that facebook is already doing that and like they they already we already do see stuff that's only curated for us, you know, like we I only see the post from like five people in my like 800 friend post, right? Yeah. And I remember, like, after the 2016 11 er, election, it came out that yeah, like, you're not seeing everything, you're only seeing things that are curated for you anyway. And so that's why so many people thought that Hillary had it on lock. And even in the Ontario election, we just elected somebody who is basically Trump light, like he's this crack dealing misogynist rate like horrible he's basically he wants to be trump basically and he, <laughs> he got elected um and a lot of us were like what the hell because all i was seeing on my feed was everyone voting for the the socialist ish party or not socialist but social democrat so it was just like oh what the fuck and you realize that you're not seeing anything anyway right so yeah <laughs>
1: like well the social media companies i mean they create a reality tunnel where it really can warp your perspective on what like regular people across the country are, are feeling or thinking.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, especially when, you know, I, I think the egalitarian side of it was what got a lot of people um, like me originally to buy into the concept of Facebook and YouTube and Twitter, because it felt as if there was a legitimate, even though it was a privately owned company, and this is very naive to look back on my mindset of it at the time, but oh, this is sort of democratized. Mm-hmm. Um, you your stuff comes up in the order when it was posted, you see all of your friends' posts in chronological order. Um, you don't have to click on your friend's profile to see their posting because it will just automatically come up. That's not how it is anymore on Facebook, mm-hmm. and that's actually. That was a modification they did over time gradually and that's you know w- even way before what we we're talking about with this fake news stuff so they were already getting us to buy into this concept of it's fair it's democratized um, and they slowly peeled that back and really um, and and made it more much more narrow what you're allowed to go on Facebook what you're allowed to see mm-hmm. um, and 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 I think actually in some ways Twitter is is one of the only holdouts in sort of these major Silicon Valley companies. But we've even seen Twitter is starting to, well, not starting to, they've done this actually as far back as a year ago, um, change the sort of chronological timeline aspect of Twitter too. Mm-hmm. So b- originally you used to see tweets come up in the order they were posted. You used to see everybody's tweets that you were following. Mm-hmm. And now they they say they actually have a policy. You look at their, um, I don't know where it is on their website, but they s- explain uh, that no, we're not like shadow banning people. We don't block people from showing up on your feed, but you, but you, but some people you might still have to click on their profile to see their tweets. Mm-hmm. So they're actually talking out both sides of their mouth there because. From what we understand about the way these services are supposed to work, a democratized service would actually show everybody's tweets in the order in which they're posted. You wouldn't have to click on Mm -hmm. someone's profile to see it. That kind of defeats the purpose. So they, you know, inch by inch, they sort of take away these little features that we thought Mm -hmm. made it a democratized and egalitarian system until we sort of get used to this more boxed in narrow framework and and we eventually just get used to that. Mm-hmm. I know, and I know the boiled frogs analogy is very overused, but I think it's very apt here because I believe that's what these Silicon Valley companies have done mm-hmm. is they've, they've created this very exciting um, environment for us to think that we had a fair shot when in reality we really don't. Mm-hmm. And you know, even something as trivial as becoming a viral YouTube star, mm-hmm. you know, I feel like even that's going to be taken away eventually because, um, it's just it's just too risky. It's I don't know if it really helps their profit margin, um, to create an egalitarian, democratised system in the at the end of all this. Mm-hmm. So
0: yeah, I don't think it does.
1: Yeah, so I think we really have, you know, it's I and I make this argument a lot, but I I believe it to be true. Is that I feel like we have set ourselves back. Just activists as a whole um, have set themselves back by relying on these social media networks mm-hmm. instead of just using them to supplement their own activism in other places, whether that be in real life, whether that be mailing lists, whether that be physical you know mail snail mail. Um, so I feel like we ought mm-hmm. to be thinking about going back to some of those classic techniques. I mean even just a, a physical mailing list. I mean how many activists out there? Um, are doing that right now. And I feel like Mm -hmm. not enough, you know,
0: Yeah, no, it is really scary, because I remember even way before this, I mean, in the Harper years, uh, which is like 2006 to 2015, a lot of activists in Canada were using Twitter to try and organize different protests and whatever. And um, we were already being watched there, like they were already seeing like what we were going to do and infiltrating us and, and whatever. So they've been doing this forever. Actually, I think you had a podcast about the military roots of the Internet itself, which was kind of chilling But I totally agree that Oh, with
1: like Yasha Levine. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, that was really terrifying. But yeah, we've gotten to this place where and and like a lot of us who are doing like online activism, it's like we don't have huge networks in real life. Or even I guess if we did, people would be more apt to like give us their mailing address. But like, if I tried to reach out to my followers on YouTube and be like, yeah, give me your mailing addresses, like nobody would do that. They'd be like, you're gonna dox me or whatever, right? Yeah. Um, Because everyone's scared. Everyone's scared now, you know? So, yeah, I mean, we definitely set ourselves back, but we're also in this place where how else do we connect? You know, it's a
1: double edged sword. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's why I've been really thinking, I guess, about like tactics to combat this. But I think we can get to that at the end. That's probably like jumping ahead way too much. But I guess going to this idea of the why now, because what was all of their reasons for doing this at this exact moment? Because as you've said, Alex Jones has been breaking their terms of service for quite some time now.
1: Yeah, and it needs to be said that Alex Jones has, you know, really known how to work these social media networks to boost his own viral success and popularity and at one time they immensely profited off his presence on their networks. So, that being said, um uh, why now? Why did they decide that he's finally violated the terms of service? Because if you look back at his past 2 years of work, He really hasn't changed that much since Donald Trump. I mean, he's been calling for violence on and off for the last two years on his uh, show. He's been insinuating violence against real individuals. I mean, I think even most recently he said something about Robert Mueller. Um, So if we're just honing in on what may have triggered it, it could have been his death threats to like his veiled death threats to Robert Mueller. Um, mm-hmm. Which got generated a lot of publicity. Um, you could also look back to all these lawsuits that have been accumulating against Alex Jones as another reason why these social media networks finally caved to pressure. Um, all the Sandy Hook families um, that Alex Jones has been going around saying that their kids didn't actually die—you know, horrible, offensive mm-hmm. things like that—he's mm-hmm. been getting sued over that. Ch- Chobani yogurt sued him for um, insinuating that. Um, they're bringing in like Muslim rape squads or something like into their factory. I don't even, I, 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 I i'd have to look at that specifically to see what he was saying, but yeah, Chobani yogurt sued Alex Jones. So, um, you know, a bunch of people have, I think James Alafontis, the owner of Comet Pizza definitely sent Alex Jones, at least a very stern legal, uh, threatening legal letter of some kind. I don't know if he actually took him to court. Um, so, you know, this is there's definitely been a lot more publicity recently too about how alex jones is is unhinged. He's calling for civil war, media matters, which is owned by david Brock um at people who don't know who he is should look him up um They've been trying to generate as much hysteria as possible about how Alex Jones is dangerous for the past two years and I think in some ways that all that has has culminated into we got to do something about Alex Jones now, finally, so I think there's some truth to that is that there was an organic pressure building um, against him. You know, some of it organic, some of it not. I would say the David Brock end of it is definitely um, sort of politicking, you know, more in that mold, even though the things that Media Matters does point out of Alex Jones, I'll, w- I'll look at their articles sometimes and be like, wow, this is a great clip they pulled of Alex Jones calling for civil war. You know, that's good that, you know, even though it's David Brock, I'm glad somebody's actually watching his show. Kyle mm-hmm. Kalinsky of Secular Talk does a great job of um, of pulling Alex Jones clips like that as well, and sort of um, you know critiquing Alex Jones, uh, mm-hmm. and he's he has a very um, he's very familiar with Alex Jones. He's he's known about him going back as far as I think 2008. So Kyle has a very good um, perspective on it. But I think to answer your question about why now, I think that what's most troubling about it is the. That it happened all in a very short period of time, like a 24 hour period of time. Mm-hmm. And I think that when you really look at that, it must mean some level of coordination between these different corporations. And I think even though we can all agree that Alex Jones is hateable, um, that he's a scam artist, um, that he sells supplements, you know, that apparently some of them have lead in them, um, he's, mm-hmm. you know, he makes millions of dollars off of fear-mongering, that it's still spooky and something is unsettling about the fact that, you know, three or four companies getting together in a 24-hour period can essentially erase your presence off of the internet. And Mm -hmm. I would almost argue that even though Alex Jones is a terrible figure in many ways, he's still a part of history now. And to sort of make him, erase him from history... And you could argue, well he still has a website, He's still you could still look him up on Google or whatever. I feel like YouTube at this point represents, in some ways, a, a, it's, a, it's a piece of history now, and I feel like it is in the public interest, even though it's a private company. So that's when you know you can't make the argument that this is a First Amendment issue because it's a private company, but um, it's very chilling to me that at any time any of these companies can just erase history and erase a large part of what you know something that used to be accessible to everybody even if you're just looking at Alex Jones from a critical point of view for example a very heavy agenda part 4 which i'm working on right now um i had all these clip links i i, I stupidly didn't download them already I just had all the urls and all the time codes already written out mm-hmm. for all the edits i was going to do um now i can't get any of those clips because they're not on youtube anymore so mm-hmm. even if you're you're looking at Alex Jones and you want to study him from a critical point of view it's it's more difficult now because they've removed all of his videos from YouTube so mm. um, I find it very troubling and I think that it's I do think it's short-sighted to see his removal from all these social media networks as something completely separate and isolated from what's happening to Telesur and this larger um, uh, push to combat fake news and this this climate that we've entered in after the 2016 election. Um, mm-hmm. And then also Roger, you know, then just throwing this in the mix, this is just my speculation, but Roger Stone may be indicted soon by the Mueller um, investigation. So, you know, maybe that has something to do with it. You know, I, I don't know, maybe someone from the Mueller team got involved. I mean, this is complete speculation on my part, but I'm just, I'm mm-hmm. I'm putting these pieces into place because Roger Stone is like, on infowars every single day. I mean, mm-hmm. so I I don't know exactly what happened and I don't think we'll ever really know, but unfortunately there aren't any there really isn't anybody on the on the left or really anybody saying, "Look, this is troubling because corporations did this in seemingly coordinated fashion in a 24-hour period and we should examine why this is because when mm-hmm. we examined why it happened at WikiLeaks we found that government officials were calling these corporations mm-hmm. on the phone and putting pressure on them to remove the, remove the shit. So, mm-hmm. I guess that's the way I would stress people to look at it. But, you know, it's it it it's and 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 it and people can construe that as a defense of Alex Jones. But I I feel like it's it's not really defensive him specifically. It's just we we should look closer at what's happening here. I guess.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, are any of the other social networks working with the Atlantic Council, or is that just Facebook?
1: For now, that's just Facebook, I think. But now that you mention it, I think Google um, is also working with them. And what's interesting about Google is they were working with people who were part of Atlantic Council's digital forensics lab, uh, actually as early as 2015. Um, They were paying a guy named Bellingcat, um, who now runs a larger website called Bellingcat, um, with a a team of people um, who later became... Uh, the Atlantic Council Digital Forensics Lab. So Google was actually very ahead of the curve on this and was de-ranking and fighting disinformation or fighting fake news um, even before the election. So, Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, Julian Assange wrote a book um, where he he had a face-to-face conversation with Eric Schmidt, the CEO of Google, for I think multiple days. He visited him when he was on house arrest and um and essentially i mean it's it really lays out a convincing case that google operates almost as if it's a geopolitical player in ge- in geopolitical affairs more than it does as a corporation that eric schmidt actually sees himself as someone like as as if he's in the us state department so God. um yeah it's it's very creepy i mean and, and just imagine all of the power that google has just in terms of the information that it has, I mean, mm-hmm. um, it, it's uh, it, in some ways it might be more a more powerful surveillance tool than even the NSA or the CIA in, in some mm-hmm. regards. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's really scary to me.
0: No, absolutely, no, that is really really scary. And just like how much control Google has over all the information that we see also, like, uh, I feel like I need to start stop using Google, just like use a different search engine. But <laughs> I I, feel like I always say that, but I never start using it, you know, but
1: yeah, and I don't even know if other search engines, I mean, yeah, I, I don't know if there are other search engines out there that are as powerful as Google. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, there, there might be still, but yeah, I don't, I don't use them either. And, um, and yeah, that's, that's goes back to what I'm saying about, we've bought into all these things and we're just used to them now. Mm -hmm. And it makes us feel like we don't have other alternatives because, because they're so useful. Mm -hmm. I mean, even just, you know, Gmail, um, is, is it's surreal to me that we've all bought into that as well, because it's really not that amazing compared to other email services. It's pretty much the Mm -hmm. same, but yet we all use it. I mean, I use it. Um, I use Google drive, and all that stuff is connected to their system, and and they could, you know, they they say they just sniff the emails with an algorithm to to send you ad requests or whatever. But mm-hmm. and this is something I've actually never said on a podcast before, and I'll and I'll say it here because it's I've just it just came to mind, and I guess enough time has passed. I'm not really afraid of it coming back to me now. But I asked for. Um, Google whistleblowers and Facebook whistleblowers to contact me. I actually bought a Facebook ad (laughs) of this uh, two years ago as an experiment. They let the ad run, surprisingly. They probably (laughs) wouldn't let it run now. Calling Uh for whistleblowers of their own company. Um, So I got approached at a party randomly (laughs) by a guy claiming to be a Google contractor. He turned out he actually was. And he said he was going to uh, take documents from Google for me um, that would prove that they were making ad money off of questionable child pornography-ish websites. Huh. Now, that actually already came out in a story um, after that. He never got me the documents. He, he, he quit Google. Um, but what he did tell me that actually creeped me out even more, if that wasn't creepy enough <laughs> that they're doing that, and that's been proven, and, and there's been an article that's come out since then from someone else, um, he admitted to me that he was spying on musicians uh, using their google search history that he wanted to have a business relationship with what? and he was telling me this as if as if it would be something that I would find funny or interesting and instead, I just thought he was a total fucking psychotic person I mean I would uh-huh. just I was really angry when I heard this and to think that a singular google contractor has access to your Google search history—if they know your Gmail address—and um, they could just look it Ugh. up with no consequences and not be caught. A uh, very, very creepy. Um, to wow. think about what kind of information they have access to, because what does your search history show? I mean, uh, you know, I mean, for some people, it could show very revealing things, like you know, like porn search results or things like mm-hmm. that. So, um, very, very troubling. You know, to to learn that just a regular Google contractor thought that that was funny to tell
0: me. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I feel like we're already living in this like total dystopian nightmare. And it's hard because obviously we want to get our information out. But, you know, where do we get it? But so I guess, yeah, it's interesting that, you know, all how many of the networks it was Spotify, Apple, uh, YouTube, Facebook, all at once, but not Twitter.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Not Twitter. No.
0: Wondering why that is.
1: Well, did you see um, Jack Dorsey from Twitter has been getting immense heat uh, recently from the media? They've been bringing him on to interview him and ask him why. Mm -hmm. And I kind of, as much as I don't, you know, I mean, the guy is, I I don't really respect him as a person, but I respect what the stance that he's taking because um, he makes a good point. He believes, I mean, his, his main point is that even though Alex Jones is, Is putting out things that can be construed as hate speech, and he might be perceived as dangerous. It's still in the public interest for people to be able to respond to and to address the things that he's saying, because you know if all this stuff is just hidden from us, then in terms of if even if you agree, Alex Jones is doing enormous damage. Why would you not want to – why would it, you want it all to be hidden from you? Because then you won't really know the impact necessarily that it's having. I think it would be harder to gauge. So I feel like I, – I think his argument's a good one. Um, but I also think there's another argument that I don't see people making, and I was making this on Media Roots, is that I don't think you can conceivably make the argument that Alex Jones and Infowars – poses a greater danger to society than, say, for example, Fox News does or mm-hmm. Laura Ingram or Sean Hannity or Tucker Carlson. Mm-hmm. I mean, the kind of stuff they put out on their shows is, you know, barely coded white nationalism, mm-hmm. um, fear mongering about immigrants, about minorities. I mean, it's it's really dangerous stuff that really does um you know, probably cause violence in this country in ways that we have really no way of knowing. So Mm -hmm. um, they're still on YouTube and they're always going to have a YouTube channel. There's no argument. Nobody's arguing that Fox News should be removed from these social media networks. No Mm -hmm. one's making the argument that CNN or other networks that lied about the Iraq war should be removed from social media yet mm-hmm. their propaganda led to the deaths of almost 1 million Iraqis so
0: mm-hmm. i think
1: it needs to be looked at multiple angles because i don't think that i don't think Alex Jones and InfoWars pose a great enough danger that they that they need to be removed because if Alex Jones is say for example violating the first amendment if he's actually you know doing the the proverbial crying fire in a crowded theater and 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 violating free speech laws then yeah i mean he'll you know he'll be impacted by that and and he deserves to be but i don't think that he it's reached that level yet i mean maybe he i mean he's so crazy though that i mean he might at a certain point so mm-hmm. You know, and again, he is the perfect case study for someone to ban off all these networks where most people won't bat an eyelash because he is unhinged, crazy. He's a charlatan. um, And I think that that's maybe part of why they did it. Um, And I, but again, that's speculation. I don't know exactly what their reasoning was internally. I only know that their public reasons is that he violated terms of service, it was hate speech, and he had to go um and mm-hmm. that's what spotify facebook and and i think youtube even use the same um same reasoning
0: mhm yeah i mean i guess that kind of brings up like broader questions around inciting violence and what that means and to what extent we do have a responsibility to try to protect people when somebody has like millions of followers and they're directly calling for violence against certain people i guess for me it's always frustrating when people talk about violence like Because I I always think about like slow violence in terms of the violence that's just wrought upon everybody simply by living within this political economic framework or, you know, the violence of imperialism and racism, etc. And violence against immigrants, etc. So it's like, on the one hand, you know, like you said, people like Fox News, CNN, who are propping up this kind of slow violence or this violence that we, we don't immediately see That's fine. Like, everything's fine with that. But like the kind of more in your face violence of just like a street riot or somebody calling for whatever someone to get hurt. That's the kind of violence that we step in to stop. But I guess I just I wonder, because obviously, these, these companies, you know, they'd be liable if they, well, I don't know Would they would like, I guess before Facebook used to say that whatever my whatever the users post, it's not our issue like we don't we don't control what they post, but now it's like would they be liable if somebody come came out and said you know i hope that this person gets killed and then they get killed you know what i mean like where do we draw the line in terms of somebody trying to incite violence or and like who do we trust to be the arbiter of what is violence
1: yeah that's a very good question and i and i think technically they aren't liable for that and i think that it's and i still don't think they are so i think that while that is definitely an issue and while on the surface, it does seem like you can make the argument that Alex Jones had got, his rhetoric had gotten so violent, um, that he needed to be banned. I think that the reason that they banned him has more to do with, uh, the topic you brought er- up earlier as this, the Cambridge Analytica pressure that came down, that, like came slamming down on Facebook after that. They don't want to be responsible for, uh, the political outrage machine like coming after them for throwing another election. I think that when it comes down to individuals committing violence, we've had so many examples of that happening and and it was announced on social media first, for example, let's just take Facebook for an example. How many acts of violence that have been committed in real life that were announced on Facebook first? Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's going to continue. And I think in terms of people at Facebook, I think that that's a relatively minor issue the world is a violent place, and I think that that's probably how they look at it. It's just well, we have two billion users. Out of those two billion users, there's a x you know certain percentage of people who are going to commit violence, and um, and our platform allows them to announce that or even Facebook live stream their own suicides or mur- you know they're murdering people. I mean, so they are, and that's still you know you can't you can't even prevent that. That could happen today.
0: People are murdering people on Facebook live streams.
1: I think it's, I mean, it's, I don't know if it's happened more (laughs) than once, but people have been, Let's. well, I can't actually, maybe I'm wrong about that, but (laughs) I know that like ISIS, I know that ISIS has posted, um, like beheading videos and stuff like us as Facebook videos and stuff like that.
0: Yeah.
1: So that was their original sort of like, we need to do something to stem these violent you know, politically violent videos from being on Facebook. But I think in terms of why Alex Jones was taken off, I do think it has more to do with this combating fake news. We cannot be responsible again for being, I mean, I don't even think they feel responsible. If you really talk to like Zuckerberg off the record, I believe he takes no responsibility. But I think that he knows that the public pressure on him will be enormous and they will blame him. So I think that that has more to do with that. They don't want the blame
0: mm-hmm. um
1: and i and i I mean that's you know but i again you have to you do have to wonder if they're working with these u s government funded agencies to combat fake news. what other politics are in play there and it's hard to say because i would I would just be speculating, but I do think it has a lot to do with politics that Maybe some of these people in Facebook and Google now do see themselves as having this patriotic duty to fight Russian disinformation or fake news. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that probably plays some role too.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I guess if politics are really heavily involved, then it it does make the Alex Jones choice really, really crafty, because now the conversation isn't really around fake news or, you know, Silicon Valley, Valley's control of our information, the conversation is around, to what extent do we have a responsibility to ban people who are inciting violence? And like, and that isn't a question also, though, because it's like, well, let's say, you know, Jordan Peterson starts calling for much more violence. It's like, uh, do we have a responsibility to kick him off? Or do we not? You know, it's and it's like, how do we draw that line? Especially because If we did try to draw that line, like leftists would be definitely affected as well because leftists talk about, you know, punching Nazis or, uh, you know, overthrowing the bourgeoisie, which is kind of could be construed as inciting violence or talking about like the cops. And obviously those things are reactions to the really insidious slow violence that the system rings upon everybody but still i guess this like where to draw the line is uh, a bit murky especially if like marginalized communities are being hurt
1: well yeah i mean i don't know what the free speech laws are like in canada i mean but in america it's pretty there's been enough supreme court cases where oh, sorry i said a, a united states um so <laughs> Instead of saying America, that makes me sound very, very America-centric. Um, but yeah, there. I mean, there's been so many Supreme Court precedents and cases to define very clearly what is a violation of the First Amendment, what isn't. What's you know the proverbial crying fire in a crowded theater. So I feel like there are very clear lines here, and this is the the corporations aren't beholden to those laws. That's it's arbitrary, mm-hmm. so they can dictate whatever they want in terms of like what's considered hate speech, Mm -hmm. what's considered, you know, a violation of their terms of service. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, it's, I mean, arbitrary is, is really what it is. There's really no rhyme or reason to it. Even though Mm -hmm. I saw, I, I think I watched a debate on the intercept where someone debating with Glenn Greenwald was saying that they've defined their own terms of service policies around hate speech laws. And similarly to first amendment laws, and even if that was their intention originally i feel like we they cannot be trusted i mean there's mm-hmm. no way that we can expect these private companies to follow the first amendment i mean they clearly mm-hmm. don't see themselves as being in the public interest they're narrowing the framework of this they're limiting what we can say and do on these services and mm-hmm. and and i'll repeat it again i mean they they can literally erase history now um mm-hmm. so I don't know what the solution is to that other than r- not relying on them. Um, but I, I I keep going back to this idea of erasing history because I do think at this point in time, Facebook has 2 billion people on it. It's existed for long enough now where it is part of history. There's a mm-hmm. large amount of human history on that website. Mm-hmm. And so there does need to be some kind of public control of it somehow. And I don't, I, I just don't know how you do that because they've just become too big to like really properly regulate at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's really, it really is a dilemma. Like they really Mm -hmm. have gotten too big.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I guess if they're not liable, then it just becomes about like public pressure or public sentiment and just not wanting to get bad press, not wanting to have their stock value get hurt or whatever. So it does become arbitrary and it does become kind of this mob mentality of whoever's upset about somebody saying something can, you know, or even on YouTube, if someone's upset about something I said in a video, they can just do this mass flagging thing and then it's down. Right. So,
1: yeah. And I think that that makes uh, Twitter sort of the only holdout in the sense that it'll be interesting to see how long they last, not caving to some of this pressure. Um, Mm -hmm. They've already definitely caved to some of it and in ridiculous ways too. Let's not forget that they sent, emails out to perhaps millions of Twitter users saying some of the, of your tweets that you saw on your feed between this time and this time may have been Russian propaganda. We're just <laughs> letting you know. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you got one of those emails. I didn't get one. No. I, I actually, a few of my friends got them. So that's kind of a weird thing. You know, what is, why would they even do that? Mm-hmm. was that from public pressure? I would, I would say that that's not from public pressure. That's from political pressure. Mm-hmm. From the think tank class, from the intelligence class, mm-hmm. from other people who are who are calling them on the phone, there aren't people picketing outside of Twitter demanding that they, you know, do something about Russian disinformation. It's the political mm-hmm. class that is. Mm-hmm. So, I think that they're playing a delicate game here, where they are not caving to public pressure, and and somehow you know they're keeping infowars online, um, mm-hmm. but they're but I mean we'll we'll just have to see how it plays out because i think that in time they will cave i mean to even mm-hmm. have faith that twitter who's already totally changed around the the egalitarian nature of their their system is going to not cave i mean i think mm-hmm. it would be naive so
0: mm-hmm. but
1: for now they're one of the they're the biggest holdouts so
0: mm-hmm.
1: um only yeah. time will tell i guess
0: but i mean and i know like a lot of my friends get banned off twitter all the time so i mean like they already ban a lot of leftists anyway for like the most marginal of things right um totally and it's a temporary ban so eventually they can come back on anyway but they're already kind of doing that um on for like smaller accounts but i guess that kind of feeds into this whole discussion or conversation where a lot of people are saying it's not that they're applauding alex jones getting taken down but a lot of people are saying like this isn't really a slippery slope because this has already been happening for so long to left this. like yeah. i've seen a lot of posts where people have saying you know trans people people of color have already been being banned or shadow banned and all of this stuff for so long and their voices you know it's never a free speech issue when any one of their things goes down because they just don't have any following or they don't have any money or anything like that right so i guess how do yeah. you respond to that kind of just the discourse about like, this isn't a slippery slope, like, it's it's already, um, like, leftist voices are already so marginalized, or already subject to so much censorship that, you know, Alex Jones is not, like, the, I don't know, a tipping point or something.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, I, in my mind, I think both arguments can be true. Because, yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, the left has been the main target of this, I would argue that, all this like right wing, hysterical like media stuff that's really exploded, you know, during the Trump era, I believe that it poses far less of a threat to the establishment and the status quo than genuine left, anti imperialist, anti-capitalist media does, mm-hmm. um, by far. So mm-hmm. that's always been a target. I mean, even if you look back at um the J. Edgar Hoover era um you know the 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 era when the deep state became more more you know the idea of it not the term but the idea of it became more well known to the american public almost all the people being targeted by that system by the fbi by cointelpro were leftists so mm-hmm. yes it, it's definitely nothing new and we have always been under threat and under um and especially the most marginalized among us have been under threat but i do still think that being said, that that this InfoWars mass banning, coordinated banning, does show a tipping point in the sense that they really decided to go for it this time. And I mean, they, I mean, corporations getting together and coordinating this purge at the same time. Mm-hmm. And yes, I don't think, like, I can totally understand why there's a lot of leftists cheering it on, but... I still think it's, it, it is short-sighted to not see this as not just a continuation of purging and banning leftists, but they've enhanced the—well, um, enhance is the wrong word—it's it's, it's become something more intense now. We're on top of this marginalization of leftists that's happened throughout history and on the internet we now have this idea of combating fake news that pulls in that makes these fear even larger in terms of what is considered threatening and mm-hmm. what is considered, you know, fake news or that shouldn't be, you know, it shouldn't be in the public interest. So mm-hmm. I, I guess I just really still believe that, that it does um, present a tipping point. Um, and I've actually, I mean, and you know this is an annoying thing especially after Ben Shapiro was like I'll give $10,000 to debate <laughs> ocasio Cortez or whatever. But I put out I put out an inquiry saying hey, I know I'm kind of alone here on, in this opinion on the left, you know, speaking about the, the Alex Jones this way, but I'd like to like talk with another leftist about it who has the opposite perspective. And I didn't nobody was nobody um responded to my request.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: and I wish someone would because I really would like to have what you just said. I really would like to have a wider discussion just about that mm-hmm. and to see if we could come, you know, me and another person could come to some kind of middle ground there and be like, yeah, both of these are true. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there. this is a tipping point at the same time as it being it's been happening to us for a very long time. So I guess
0: mm-hmm.
1: that's where I land on. I don't know if that was a helpful answer I kind of went all over the place there
0: yeah no i mean i can see it from i can see that both things would be true in some sense right so i mean i think it is kind of incredible in terms of optics i think it's interesting that they chose alex jones because first of all he's somebody that these corporations have all profited immensely on especially youtube with like ad revenue etc so and it kind of kind of makes it seem like, yeah, you know, we're not just banning the leftists. Like, we're going to go after high-profile right-wing people who give us money, too. So I think in a sense, that even kind of helps the whole... Well, it does two things. It it helps the right-wing side who says that we're all being censored and rah-rah-rah free speech. But then it also helps on this kind of, yeah, Russiagate-type thing where it just makes people acquiesce to the fact that all of these pages are going down like nobody would get upset like not that many people even mentioned that telesaur got taken down or or whatever right so because it's just this whole kind of um People just see that as like, well, good, you know, they're, they're evil, like, we need to (laughs) get rid of them, right? So it kind of just feeds all into that. So I can see, obviously, this is, this is a tipping point in a lot of ways. And it is something we should be concerned about in a lot of ways. And then on the other side, I can also see that, I guess, maybe the question is, considering leftist voices are being banned all the time and are constantly under threat. In the context of us already being banned all the time and marginalized, does fighting for the rights of Alex Jones, does that do actually anything for the leftist cause or like for leftist voices to continue to get any airtime at all within this like Silicon Valley framework?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, that's a very good point. And I don't think that it it does, because I think directly, if your position is directly fighting for... Alex Jones's free speech rights, or something like that. No, I, I absolutely don't think it helps the leftist cause at all, mm-hmm. um, and that's why I'm trying to look at this in a broader sense than Alex Jones. I think what you just said, like a minute ago, is very. Uh, what you said, I think that was is the most scary. Is so banning Alex Jones creates a giant blow up and and me- media storm. I mean, it's going to grab all the headlines. Everybody's mm-hmm. heard about it. Mm-hmm. What's scary about that is we know they're banning leftist pages. we know they're banning leftist accounts. We mm-hmm. know that this is happening at the same time, and Alex Jones will be fine at the end of the day mm-hmm. he's a multi million dollar operation um he he's gonna be fine mm-hmm. um so I'm not defending his like platform in the sense that like I don't think that you know. Like he's gonna be fine.
0: Mm-hmm. The
1: people who won't be fine are these almost virtually invisible leftists in organizations like Telesur who get banned sort of in the middle of this climate, because mm-hmm. we'll only hear about these people like these sensationalist people like Alex Jones getting banned, which mm-hmm. most people can cheer on his banning, while at the same time not even realizing and not even having any awareness that these other bannings are happening sort mm-hmm. of under the cover of darkness. And mm-hmm. I think that to me is the that's the real danger to leftists. And I think that when you look at it that way, I think that it's you know, you have to you have to do it delicately and carefully because in the leftist community, a lot of the things I've said during this podcast can be construed as a defense of Alex Jones, even though it technically isn't. It's mm-hmm. just trying to I'm just really trying to emphasize the we need to have an awareness of mm-hmm. what this whole greater system is doing,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: um for example, like Ab- Abby um you know there's people who've been calling her a conspiracy theorist for years, so if we're going if we're on this track now we're even just like let's not even talk about the political side of the of the content if it's just things that lean conspiracy at all, and people start talking about banning that now mm-hmm. because of Alex Jones, then that puts us directly in the crosshairs regardless of our political um ideology mm-hmm. you know and if we're left or right so mm-hmm. the fact that we're left and we have conspiracy leaning views sometimes i i feel like we're not you know the 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 specter of banning us or or shadow banning us or whatever um it's very close to us already and mm-hmm. i would argue that uh, our media reach presence on Facebook has dwindled significantly, even though our actual audience has grown mm-hmm. significantly. Mm-hmm. So it's an odd thing when you see your actual likes and your reach on Facebook dwindling over time as your actual listening audience is growing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's odd to me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'll sound paranoid for saying that that we're being shadow banned, but there's really no other way to explain it. So mm-hmm. I feel like this is already happening to us on some level, but we're still allowed to post on it actually mm-hmm. media uh, media roots is no longer allowed to pay to advertise like $40 boosts for mm-hmm. our episodes like we used to do um because it's political it says it violates their terms of service now mm-hmm. so we we feel that it is inching closer and closer to us um mm-hmm. and even you know if you look at like for example um like Scott Horton who runs Libertarian Institute Anti-War Radio um he was banned off Twitter during around the same time that this all happened mm-hmm. and you know he's a much more obscure figure than Alex Jones. So again, it's like nobody even realizes that that's happening.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but you know, and regardless of your view on libertarianism, he does. He interviews a a, a swath of very important. I mean, he's, he has over a thousand interviews with some of the most you know important anti-war, imperialist, leftist people out there. So um, and even if like I'm just gonna and and this may you know maybe this is going to make me sound like an Alex Jones defender again. But if you go back to like the Bush era of Alex Jones, it provides a valuable public service in the sense that he had on um, guest after guest on his show that were anti-war left activists and politicians like Dennis Kucinich, for example, used to go on Infowars all the time during the Bush era. Um, A lot of Figures like that did, and now those interviews are simply removed from YouTube. Um, Mm -hmm. And I believe even if you hate Alex Jones, those people coming on his show, that's still in the public interest to hear those interviews. So Mm -hmm. I think that that's something that people are are neglecting to realize too, is that at one time, whether you hate him or not, Alex Jones used to appeal towards a left-leaning audience. In fact, Mm -hmm. I knew regular Democrats. Um, back during the Bush era, who used to listen to him. So Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't always this hateful, you know, foaming at the mouth right-wing outlet. Um, So Mm -hmm. I I don't think most people even know that. I mean, because to most people, he is just this crazy, gun-toting, you know, pro-Trump conservative. um, And and he's definitely evolved over time. I mean, in a terrible way, but I mean, still.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess. Okay, so I guess, you know, since we do know that the Atlantic council is kind of behind this and we know who's like funding them. I guess the idea of Alex Jones being banned is really significant, whether or not, you know, whether or not leftists have always been banned. It is significant because, because he is so sensational. It can be just used as this cover or it just kind of steals the thunder of every other thing that's going on because it's like, Oh, too bad. Telesur got banned, but you know that's fine. It's not a partisan thing. We're banning right. We're banning left. Like we're just cleaning house here, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess at the end of the day, it's just that, like, yeah, we shouldn't be using these platforms because I feel like even if even if he wasn't banned, let's say Alex Jones didn't get banned. But you know, Telesur got banned. I still don't think that that many people would have like known or like raised a big fuss about it, it would have it would have still just been kind of this quiet thing like leftist voices are getting shadow banned all the time and i mean like i i notice if i tweet something or if i post on facebook and i have a hashtag like free palestine it gets like half the engagement that i get if i don't put any hashtag or if i you know what i mean so it's like i can already see i can already see that we're being um you know banned or, or not being given the full breadth of views and you talked about on your show that like the YouTube algorithms and everything, like they favor things like Jordan Peterson and Alex Jones and, and all these big sensational things because it brings them money, right? Totally. So, yeah, I mean, regardless if they're banned or not, I guess at the end of the day, it's like, well, yeah, we just shouldn't be on these things, right? Because it's like, yeah, this is providing a cover to ban all these other things. But even if it wasn't, we we still aren't going to be getting anywhere if people like, the Atlantic Council are directing Facebook and the things that are showing us our news and our our everything
1: well yeah I mean we're we're going to be able to only be able to get to a certain point, yeah, um, and I think that and I think that that's re- the reality we all need to realize is that while it will feel like and it's exciting to feel like you're growing your audience in these platforms, especially the bigger ones like YouTube. They will only let you grow to a certain degree now, and I think that that should be clear to anyone who's doing like serious activism that's threatening to the establishment. Mm-hmm. Um, there, are, so I think that there are some alternative platforms. I mean, for example, SoundCloud hasn't taken any political stance on any of this. We haven't noticed anything changing with our growth um, because of all this, but we have noticed it on YouTube on Facebook. So, these bigger companies are definitely already doing something that we can that we can notice. Now, we haven't made a big stink about this on the podcast because it's like we can't prove it. It's just, you know, it's more subtle. It's a gradual thing. Um, but I would recommend people, you know, I wouldn't say don't use YouTube. Um, I would say don't rely on it 100% to get your video message out there. I feel like there are there are ways to use these social media networks to your advantage to supplement things that you're already making available other places. But when it comes to video streaming, that's something that I believe that YouTube is sort of almost like a trap because most people, um, you know, even if you run your own web server and you're a programmer and you develop a video playing applet that, that's super smooth on your own website, it's very expensive. To provide streaming video content, especially streaming HD video content, most people cannot afford to do that. Most smaller media organizations cannot afford to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is something where I feel like YouTube is a trap, where they've they have money to burn. They have unlim- seemingly unlimited supplies of money. I don't even know if they've act- they're actually making a profit. Really, you know, mm-hmm. there might be another one of these dot com companies that's just burning money, um, and. I feel like that's part of the problem is we're relying on these things that um you know that we can never do ourselves but I feel like you know someone was even suggesting to me the other day that like you can still upload a torrent of a video and nobody can take that down because it's all sort of um peer to peer it's you know it's fragmented mm-hmm. across the internet that's a smart alternative but it's not something that You know, most people hungry for political video content are going to bother to look up. So Mm that presents a problem too. If you upload your videos to Vimeo, you know, you're going to have a harder time getting people to pay attention to them, even though Vimeo allows a lot of more controversial content. I mean, Vimeo allows, um, I wouldn't say X-rated content, but they allow like NC-17 nudity and things like that that YouTube doesn't allow. So there's less restrictions and less, you know, Politicking going on, even though actually Vimeo just banned Infowars off. Uh, coincidentally, yeah. So they're you know. So I feel like that's kind of a unique case again, where it's like, no one wants Infowars at this point, except Twitter apparently mm-hmm. and Periscope, which actually Twitter owns. So I think you know these alternative platforms that are less restricted, they're a little more open. Mm-hmm. Um, consider using those. Uh, consider um duplicating mirroring your content um on other places that aren't you know big corporations or on your own server. For exa- so there's another example that happened recently. There's this guy named Scott Creighton, um, who has a YouTube channel called American Everyman. Um he's like a left conspiracy guy. He says a lot of things I don't agree with, but I, I felt really felt for him when his um entire WordPress blog Uh, 10 years of his work was just deleted. They removed his entire WordPress blog for violating terms of service. And, and, you know, I mean, I felt really bad for him when that happened, but at the same time, you can't rely on those kind of things because if you're doing, if you're putting in 10 years of work, you got to put it somewhere else too. You got to put it on your own server, at least save it on your own computer, have a hard copy of it. So in case something like that happens, you can at least upload it somewhere else, mm-hmm. and you know there was even there's even people who upload YouTube videos in the form of live streams now, where they don't even render a video and you know put it on. It's mm-hmm. just uh, their their YouTube is the one saving the video. So I would even recommend to those people who do that download your videos right after you do a live stream mm-hmm. from YouTube. Use a YouTube ripper program because you never know. I mean, they, they can remove that stuff at any time and you'll never have access to it. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, the early version of this was like, you know, when you violate terms of service on AOL, they just like blow your account and you lose all your email. And that was, you know, that was super depressing. I remember that happened when I was like in middle school, (laughs) but now it's like so much worse Mm -hmm. what they can do to just erase all of your work and history that Mm -hmm. just in terms of if you value your own work and all this time and energy you put in. I mean, it's a terrible idea at this point to rely on any of these private companies to s- it just – if we're just talking about saving and preserving your work, mm-hmm. don't – do not risk it anymore. I think I, mm-hmm. I, I can't stress that enough.
0: Yeah, I mean, I definitely have backed up copies of all my videos and my podcasts and stuff, but I wouldn't even know where to begin like hosting my own server. Like I – to me, that just sounds wild, so <laughs> – I just feel like, yeah, for the average person, it's like, well,
1: yeah, I mean, hosting your own server is a little bit of a technical rigmarole. I mean, I used to do it when I was more way more computer savvy. I've I've like devolved significantly in my computer <laughs> skills. Um, but even if you're just using a server that believes in the egalitarian sort of free speech values, that's good enough. Because mm-hmm. those servers are li- not likely to cave to a politician's phone call, for example. Um, there's a, There was a – I forgot if it was a mail server that during um, the NSA sweeps, um, this company was got subpoenaed by the NSA saying, like, we want all of your data. And the company, instead of caving to pressure, they closed down their company and destroyed all their records. Uh-huh. That's awesome. Like, yeah. that's what – we, we there's people out there who are willing to take a stand and preserve, you know, those kinds of values and seek out those kinds of companies to serve your content.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: especially if you do controversial content, like I, that's very important. You don't have to, you know, host your own server at your own home with your own internet connection, but at the very least, don't put it on like a commercial server like Amazon um, or you know, like a cloud, like an Apple Cloud thing. Try to go to smaller companies, and I think that you will find that um, you'll you will at least maybe have more of a peace of mind about well, at least you know at least Google's not going to just erase my page tomorrow if I say something they don't like,
0: yeah. um,
1: because you know they can't. I mean, they'll have to basically. I mean, but at the at the same time, like people have gotten web servers to to cave under pressure and delete web pages. For example, the server that hosted Stormfront, that neo-Nazi website. Um, mm-hmm. I think it was like GoDaddy, they were just like, fuck these guys, like, we're going to remove their,
0: mm-hmm. you know, we're not
1: going to let them host here anymore. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that can always happen. But GoDaddy's also a big company. So, you know, I feel like even Stormfront could probably exist on like an indie, you know, server ran by some white supremacist um, militia person. And there's probably tons of people like that out in the country. But I mean, I'm not suggesting people <laughs> seek those people out. I'm just saying, find someone who just it ha- shares your values and yeah. and shares you know the values of wanting to preserve speech and and this egalitarian nature of what the internet you know should be um and and an ideal version of what it should be
0: yeah even these small companies though like do you think if if they grow i feel like the profit motive kind of corrupts everything like if they got bigger and got more kind of controversial stuff on their platform then they could be kind of in the same position as all these other big tech companies and not wanting to be liable, not wanting to accept blame, etc. I feel like you got to like keep moving to like smaller and smaller servers like every yeah. couple years.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I think if you get big enough, you will be in the crosshairs no matter what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're a controversial figure and you reach a certain level. So
0: mm-hmm.
1: people anywhere doing activism need to be ready for that too. That if you're doing something that's upsetting people at the top and making corp- you know, corporations and government officials angry, get ready for, um, you know, retaliation when you reach a certain level, you uh-huh. know, online or and and anything else. So uh-huh. um, that's just the nature, I think, of what we do. And I, I think at least in the United States, and I'm, you know, I don't know if it's the same in Canada, but the <laughs> but here, there's, you know, there's still like an invisible line in terms of like, we don't I feel like the way our sort of soft totalitarianism is designed is we don't know when we've, Actually, cross that line until we already have, mm-hmm. and that's I think what is creates kind of a chilling effect among activists and journalists uh, mm-hmm. out here. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. people need to be aware of that too—that there is sort of an invisible line where if you cross it, you will get retaliated against by powerful forces. But it's not defined, I think, intentionally because we want to pretend like we live in a free society, mm-hmm. um, and that's sort of the, that's sort of the illusion. But
0: mm-hmm. do you think there's any? value in people kind of organizing around fighting to re-democratize a lot of these things that we're using like is there any value in trying to you know bring light to the fact that these algorithms are shit and that they are actually influencing people's behavior more than any fake news russian propaganda like if we could at least have like a chronological timeline on twitter youtube etc like is there any value in doing something like that or i mean i know that some people are talking about like different platforms that are more democratizing that they're like open source ish kind of stuff I don't even know how that would work but I feel like we should <laughs> we should be doing something like either I don't know fighting for more democratized things that we already use but I don't think that's going to work because these companies are too big but I mean I feel like leftists should be creating our own kind of platforms that are run by leftists and like more open source kind of shit again I'm not techie so I don't know how that would work but
1: no, I think I mean that's a that's really important. I mean, someone there should already be an alternative to YouTube that prides itself in, you know, activism and controversial content. Mm-hmm. And I and I and I know there's other websites that do streaming video and stuff like that, but I don't know how you how we would do that. I mean, I do think a lot of this stuff now has crossed the threshold of being very much in the public interest. Even just Facebook has over 2 billion users. And I was making this argument on the last Media Roots Radio, but I think it's something that we should be considering where there's already archive.org, which saves almost any available website on the internet and saves snapshots of it over time. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: We should maybe consider having an organization that does that for these social media networks and preserves that information. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like Facebook, there there's a piece of history in there. They can arbitrarily remove any of that history at any time, and I feel like we've moved beyond the private sector point where it is in the public interest. And if they're not gonna, you know, change their behavior, and if they're not gonna like be regulated in the sense that where it becomes like a public utility, for example, then there needs to be some other alternative solution where at the very least we can archive everything that they have so that if they ever delete it it's at least it's still preserved mm-hmm. um, but beyond that, I don't know what we could do to like even if we open source their algorithm, it still wouldn't change their ability to you know for their their heavy hand to come in and just be like oh this this um, you know video podcaster, uh, violated our terms of service and we r- remove it or we got too many mm-hmm. complaints or whatever. Mm-hmm. So that's always going to be an issue if they're private and have their own internal mm-hmm. vetting mechanism. Yeah. So yeah, I, 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 I unless you make it public somehow and, and, and more determined by public opinion, but you know, public opinion is not the best either. I mean, like <laughs> yeah. mob mentality, um, mm-hmm. you know, can get things shut down that uh, that are good. So mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so I guess like calling all tech savvy leftists, like we need to make some kind of <laughs> co-op organizations and just create our own platforms online that we know aren't going to take get taken down because we're all running it. Um, but fuck, I mean, people don't have time for that, you know, Like people don't have time for be doing all this extra stuff. But yeah, no, it's something that scares me. Like I think about this all the time because I could easily just get cut off in a second and that's it. Like, I don't have that big of a following, so I wouldn't be able to really get back out there. So.
1: Well, no, I mean, that's the, that's the sad thing about someone like, so like, you know, even though Alex Jones got purged off all these networks, he'll be, he'll be fine in terms of he'll be able to bounce back. He's got such a giant audience Mm -hmm. um, that he, he, he's not going to be that affected by it, but people like you and me would be severely affected by that. If that happened to us, Mm -hmm. Um, it would significantly impact our ability to reach people and that's what we really have to be concerned about is we you know uh-huh. most people most activists out there don't have the resources that he has uh-huh. i mean even Telesaur, let's just talk about them for a second like
0: uh-huh.
1: you know they they've ran out of funding to pay for the empire files um they abby has to crowdfund her own um to do more continue more empire files shows right now they have very limited resources the, the economy of venezuela is in shambles uh-huh. um but it's it's really creepy when you think about how the Obama administration bragged about calling Twitter, telling them to keep it on during the Arab Spring because they wanted Egyptians and Libyans and whoever to be able to still access social media to be able to form protests. Mm-hmm. But then you see Facebook just arbitrarily removing Telesur mm-hmm. here or Palestinian web pages that are activist, you know, pro-Palestinian web pages or or sorry, pages on their site. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of almost the inverse of that because what happens if there's another 50-day war in Gaza mm-hmm. or what happens if civil war erupts in Venezuela and Maduro is, ass- let's say he gets assassinated, God forbid, something like that happens.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Will Will Mark Zuckerberg and the Facebook team get a call from the Atlantic Council and the think tank and political class out here and say,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, we need to shut this down now. Like mm-hmm. we need to remove this because this might actually be, you know, going against the U S foreign policy goals. Um, Mm -hmm. that's a very scary thing to think that they could just arbitrarily, especially during a time of crisis, Mm -hmm. remove that from the internet. And I think that that's really another very serious concern is that, you know, and, and Abby was just saying on the last podcast that so many Palestinians actually get their news off of Facebook. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how much is Israel having an influence over this? What what are they going to tell Facebook if they start bombing Gaza again? Are they just going to mm-hmm. block Facebook? I, I don't know. I mean, it really does raise a lot of questions of what they're able to do and what you know what kind of dangers are posed by that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think that this is really a serious point for leftist activism and something that we're all kind of complacent and just accepting right now. But this is something that we really do need to actually come together and think about and try to you know work together for solutions because this is yeah i just don't see this ending all well for any of us and uh i'm glad you brought up abby and empire files so i'll i'll put her i guess link for the crowdfunding there because yeah i was really upset to see that today that they were shut down because of sanctions or whatnot so
1: yeah i mean the trump administration is making serious documented movements against the maduro um government in Venezuela. And, um, you know, there's been a lot of people involved in the Trump administration who have eerie similarities to sort of eighties Reagan neoconservatism.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, uh, yeah, I think that South America is definitely that this pink tide, um, that people were talking about is definitely a threat mm-hmm. to the United States government and, and U S hegemony. And, um, and when we, and, and, you know, I mean, even if we're just talking about like libertarians i mean who who, pr- who pride themselves on being anti-war all of them have dropped the fucking ball on venezuela because mm-hmm. it's socialist and mm-hmm. those goddamn commies
0: mm-hmm.
1: i mean so really this is not getting nearly as much focus as it should be because mm-hmm. on a lot of issues the libertarians and the left are usually making the you know making the same amount of vocal outrage about these you know creeping wars but with this it's mm-hmm. really all up to the left and people need to um i think just mean to pay more attention to it i mean maduro there was just an attempt on his life uh two weeks ago with a drone that exploded
0: mm-hmm. so
1: um it's it's serious and it, there was even an assassination attempt on his life before that that was um coordinated by people in the trump administration with um with uh, proxies in colombia so this is all really happening um
0: mm-hmm.
1: and you know and and the you know minor side effect of it is Abby's show isn't funded anymore um there's far more you know dire things happening in Venezuela, but yeah um if if you if you like Empire files, consider um you know helping out Abby's GoFundMe she just got hours of original footage from Palestinian journalists during the Great March of Return um, that she was planning on turning into a, a, like a mini, like a three-part series. And um, Mm -hmm. she's just sitting on all that footage now. So Mm -hmm. um, let's, let's get that shit out there. Um, Yeah. You know, it doesn't take too much funding to get this stuff out there. It's, you know, we Mm -hmm. just need enough money to eat and you yeah. know stuff like that so
0: yeah absolutely everyone please donate because i've seen her posting about that and i'm like yes this needs to be out there and she does such amazing reporting and such amazing you know shows on the empire FL. so yeah everyone please donate i'll link that in the show notes did you have anything you wanted to add otherwise um
1: i guess just if anybody's wants to check out my documentary um they can do so at uh, a very and um If you like our podcast, Media Roots Radio, consider donating at patreon.com slash media roots
0: radio. Yes. Awesome. I would recommend doing both of those things. (laughs) Very much so. So I just want to shout out the patrons quickly before we go here. So uh, thank you so much to Jeff Sorensen, Jim Mack, and Insufficiently Woke for your generous donations via Patreon. So if you'd like to support the show, you can become a monthly Patreon donor at patreon.com veganvanguard, or you can find that on our website, veganvanguardpodcast.com, or you can toss us a one-time donation via PayPal. So thank you so much, Robbie, for coming on the show today.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah. And uh, I guess, yeah, good luck with part four of A Very Heavy Agenda. I'm looking forward to seeing that.
1: Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I don't know when it's going to be out. I'm. Uh, it's really slow going for now, but mm-hmm. um, hopefully right after the new year, maybe. I don't know.
0: Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Thanks. And I will see everyone in two weeks.